Let me uh, invite you now to open your Bibles to John chapter 3, and we will look at one verse, verse 16. Um, so listen to me uh, for a moment. Let me have your attention. So I only have to say this once. My wife is not here today, okay? She's on a boat somewhere in the Pacific Ocean. She went on a cruise. Uh, Joe Schmidt and Scott Shad are also uh, absent a wife today. So they're having a wonderful time, I assume. I haven't heard from them. But no, she hasn't left me. She just took a little break. And for that, I'm always grateful. I don't think I could be a pastor's wife. Uh, that's a hard thing to do. And to, be, and to be my wife is also, I'm sure, a challenge. As much as I hate to admit it, I'm sure it is. But I'm thankful for the wife I have, and I miss her. And if you're watching, hurry home. With that said, let's now look at John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is God's word, let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you today for your word. It is truth, and it is a living thing. It's a powerful thing. It's a creative thing. It creates in us faith and repentance. It gives us joy. The announcements of the gospel gives us peace and hope in a very, very dark place called this world. And so, Father, we thank you today that we will hear truth today from your word, and we pray that our hearts will be prepared in such a way as to hear it, rejoice in it, be excited about it, be amazed at it, even electrified by it. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. One of the leading causes of spiritual apathy, inertia, coldness, malaise for a Christian is a failure to live in the love of God. A failure to understand and grasp the concept of what it means to say God so loved. Probably the most important word, one of the most important words in John 3.16 as far as helping us understand the meaning of love is the little word so. God so loved the world. Jesus, in addressing the uh, seven churches in the book of Revelation, criticized two churches for their lack of grasping or being grasped by the love of God. To the church at Ephesus, Jesus said, you have left your first love. To the church at Laodicea, he said, I would that you were either cold or hot, but you are lukewarm and I will spew you or spit you out of my mouth. And so the issues of keeping ourselves in the love of God are so important. At the end of the day, we have to remember that I am his and he is mine. And the message of God's staggering, astounding, 
counterintuitive love in Christ is often not breaking through into our soul. And as a result, there's kind of a lack of assurance, a lack of confidence, a lack of liberty and joy and peace by not grasping or either being grasped by the love of God most clearly expressed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I suffer that malaise as well. And it bothers me when I do, which is probably one of the reasons I have chosen to preach this today. Because I want my own soul to be grasped uh, by the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so it's very important as we think about these things to understand that um, our enjoyment of our relationship with God is based upon that. But there's, there's a lot of things, I think, that sort of quench it or sort of temper it in our hearts. Uh, you know, life's hard. Life is difficult. We suffer one thing after another after another. And we have experiences in life that crush us and hurt us deeply. And we wonder in those moments, maybe quietly, because we think as a Christian we should never entertain these kind of thoughts, well, maybe God really doesn't love me that much. Maybe what I'm feeling is ignored, or I'm feeling neglected, or I'm feeling like I must have done something horribly wrong because it's never good news for me. I feel like such a loser, or life is passing me by, or I just don't sense any love when I pray. I, I, I see more in my life that speaks of God's absence than I do of his tender presence. And so life has a way of choking out and getting in the way of experiencing God's love. I had a, a preacher in seminary who's one of my uh, favorite preachers because he was so edgy. His name is Steve Brown and for many years at Key Biscayne Church outside of Miami he preached and he used to tell people this all the time. They would come to him and they'd go, Steve, why, where's God? Why is everything going so wrong in my life? And Steve would look at him over his glasses and he would say, maybe there's something about you that just ticks God off. <laughs> maybe there is. And I thought, I thought, what a terrible thing to tell people. What a terrible thing to tell people. But then he would recover, of course, and give them the good news of the gospel. But he often said this too. He said, I don't know what you did to tick God off, but please tell me because I don't want to ever do it. You know, and, and we get, we have pity parties and we, we, uh, we get depressed and we get down and we have no energy and it just seems like the whole world has left us and has passed us by. But there's something I want to say to you today to encourage you if you find yourself anywhere near that address on Pity Party Boulevard. And that is, God will never let you go. He will never, ever let you go. And that is the only reason why we have hope. He is relentless. He is pursuing. He is persevering. He is conquering. And his love will never let us go. The amazing discovery of faith is that God is above all one who gives. He gives. He gives himself. One of the best de uh, definitions of love I've ever heard is, is this. Other 
self-directed self-giving. It is getting out of myself and giving myself to someone else. But in God's case, it is infinite in his capacity to do so. There's something about his love that just transcends our ability to wrap our mind around it. It is so astounding once we understand it. But the one whose goal is to bring us to share in the glory and reign of Christ is the one who loves us. Love is the relational glue that bonds us and holds us and velcros us, as it were, to God. And he ultimately intends to bring us ultimately to the goal of sharing in his glory and basking in his love and feeling the fullness of it. In relationship to our sin, love often comes to us in the form of grace. God's goodness to us. God's goodness and grace to us in our guilt. In our relationship to our need and helplessness, God lo God's love comes to us as mercy. His mer mercy is infinite. It is beyond the clouds. It's not like God has a big vat of mercy and he dispenses it and the longer you live it's eventually going to run out. No, it's infinite like God is. As high as the heavens are above us, even higher is God's mercy toward us. Lord have mercy, don't we need that? We do. We need the mercy of God because we are helpless. One mistake we make in attempting to understand the love of God is by an infinite extension of what the word means to me or to you. Now, it is clear that when we think about the concept of love, they're all different expressions of it. When we think about love in our own life, there are so many different human loves to choose from. That is the love of a lover for his or her beloved, the love of a husband for his wife, and the wife for her husband, the love of a parent for a child, the love of a child for a parent, the love of brother for sister and sister for brother, the love of grandparents for grandchildren, the love between close friends, the love we have for our pets, for nature, for art, for good, food, and good drink, and the list could be infinitely almost extended. But when we think about the love of God, it's just not more of that only better. It's in a whole other universe of reality. And so I want to sort of try to step into that universe. How do we know God loves us? God loves us because he has chosen to reveal himself to us. And he speaks. He's not silent. He speaks. He talks to us. And he does through, so through the media of natural theology and creation, through the events of history, through the Bible, the Word of God itself, and ultimately he expresses himself in the person of his Son. And so while God is infinitely beyond us, while he transcends, transcends us, while he is holy, while he is a being but another kind of being, he has spoken. And that's how we know. He has told us, he has demonstrated, he has shown us. And the way to grasp it is to hear, first of all, the struggle of God's love with Israel in the Old Testament. And then most climactically, in the gift of his son for a sinful world, when seen this way, it is strange to us and incomparable. 
God so loved the world. Now the world doesn't just mean it's cosmos in the Greek. It has six or seven definitions. But in John's gospel, most of the time, the world means mankind in opposition toward God. Mankind in rebellion. Mankind resisting God. It is the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. And the world resists God. The world is hostile toward God. The world hates God and hates God's Christ. And yet God so, in such a miraculous way, loved that he gave what? The ultimate expression of his love is the gift of his son for a sinful world. It is self-giving, but that seems too pale, almost sepia tone. It is a love that stops at nothing. It is resolutely devoted to the other. However far away and hostile that other may be, it is a love that is unmotivated, that is, in, the, in its disinterest toward the attractiveness, beauty, worth, and virtue of the other. No sacrifice is too great to enrich a people who never ask for it, or even actively or passively oppose it. For this strange, amazing disposition of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit's heart toward us, we have no better word than the word love. But what we normally think of when that word falls far short of what is found in God's heart, we go to Revelation to see. We sometimes find it extremely difficult to believe and accept with our hearts and minds the wonder of God's love. One of the difficulties I have believing it and grasping it and understanding it is I know something of my sin. I know something of my wandering heart. I know something of my resistance and sometimes rebellion toward God. And I think to myself, humanly speaking, I wouldn't love anybody who treated me the way I treat Jesus. I wouldn't do it. I would walk away. I would say, that's enough. I'm done. I'm not going to have a dysfunctional relationship with you. I'm not going to live with you. I'm not going to love you anymore. I am out of here. But thank God, he doesn't love like I love. And that's what amazes me. That's what astounds me, is his commitment, his covenantal bond, commitment, and glue, for lack of a better word, to me. He will not let me go. And he will not let you go if you belong to him. And so the love of God is his coming and his bending and his stooping and his condescension that both presupposes and bridges the infinite gap between God and man, creator and creature, the, the infinite and the finite, and the holy and the center. Uh, for you all know the grace of God that though Jesus was rich, he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. The whole condescension, the whole laying aside his glory and coming as a man in the form of a servant, even a slave to save us, is a description of that kind of love toward us. It's so personal and so engaging. He comes, he bends down, he stoops, he condescends. This is holy love. Remember Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. Kind of glad we don't do that. Uh, I don't, I don't, I've never washed anybody's feet but my own and never intend to unless I receive a revelation that's, 
you know, attended by miracles, probably won't. But in that foot washing scene, Jesus takes the form of a slave and goes to these disciples who are just a bunch of knuckleheads for the most part and expresses love by washing their feet, by touching them, by being a servant, by humbling himself. But the ultimate condescension is his leaving the glories of heaven, participating in the dance of the perichoresis of the Trinity, enjoying and pouring out love to one another over and over. Pictures in Ezekiel as a, a wheel rolling and all of that is a picture of this uh, inter-Trinitarian delight in one another, and he's willing to leave that and to come, and not come as a king upon a throne, but as a helpless babe in a manger, all for us. I don't understand that. I don't see that. It is more than I can take in. Why? Because it was necessary. Why? Because there's an infinite gap between us and God. And he is the only one who can bridge that gap by becoming one of us, by becoming incarnate. And so God loves. But God's love is not only condescending, not only coming and giving of himself, which is what we need, by the way, too. Let me stop on that a minute. More than you need your next breath of air, more than you need the next food you intend to eat at a meal, more than you need than water in a desert, you need Jesus. You were made for him. You were made to know him. You were made to find your life in him. He is the one you need. You have no idea, and sometimes I have no idea, how much we need Jesus. And in my pride, I would say, well, I don't want to need anybody that much. That just puts me, sets me up for hurt, right? And disappointment. But Jesus will never hurt you. He will never disappoint you. And he comes to you because that is what you were made to be. You were made to be his image. And God relentlessly pursues that goal. But he gives himself freely and decisively. He doesn't need us. You know, I remember back when I was a college age and uh, I used to speak at churches some, give my testimony or whatever. And for some reason, I'd gotten this notion that the reason why God sent Jesus to, to redeem us was because God was lonely and he needed people to love him. Now, nobody ever stood up and shouted me down as a heretic. They probably should have. And if they had back then, I would have jumped from the pulpit and punched them in the face. Thankfully, neither happened. But I'm ashamed that I said something that stupid. You ever look back and say, that boy, I can't believe I said that. Can't believe I did that. Cannot believe I did that. But God doesn't need, as, as you know, God is uh, sufficient in himself. We can't enrich him. He isn't lonely. And if we uh, fail to see this and ascribe such motives to God, his son and gracious turning toward us would lose its power and luster. Yet at the same time, this gets me every time I say it, I know because of the aseity of God, God from himself, that in himself he has everything. He doesn't need praise. He doesn't need thanksgiving. He doesn't need me to worship him. He doesn't need glory from me. He's got it all full in himself. 
But the mystery above all mysteries, he doesn't need me, but he wants me. Do you see that? He wants me. Sometimes I think when Zacchaeus was up in that tree, and Jesus, you know, he's a tax collector. Everybody hated them. They were rip-off artists, con men, stealing everybody blind. So Jesus stops as he's passing through the city. He sees Zacchaeus, and he says to him, I will dine at your home tonight. And he jumps out of the tree, and I imagine the guy's doing cartwheels, saying to himself, he wants me. Nobody wanted him. Nobody wanted to spend time with him. And yet, though God doesn't need me, though I don't add anything to his cachet, though I, uh, he can't use me, uh, uh, there is no uh, altruistic motives, he wants me. And he wants to be nothing else other than my covenant partner. And he longs to have me in his presence and he wants us to know him intimately, and he wants us to find our joy, delight, and life in that relationship. Doesn't need me, does want me. And so one of the most marvelous things about that is, when you read the book of Hosea in the Old Testament, and I remember preaching through that, that when God's heart was crying out, as it were, for Israel to return to him, he says, my heart is changed within me. That is, my heart is melting. I don't know how you can say that on the one hand and, and not walk away powerfully impressed. And though it's metaphorical, I get it. I'm still moved by it. I'm still moved that there's anything I could do. There is nothing I can do to generate God's love for me, but he loves me the same reason he loved Israel in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 6, he chose Israel to be his covenant people, not because they were great warriors, they were terrible. Not because they loved him back, they resisted him at every turn. He said, I love you because I love you. That's enough for me. That's enough for me. And there's security in that love. But God's love is also a jealous love. It's a jealous love. He really and fully and completely wants us for himself. Now, we talk about jealousy among one another, and we sort of kid each other about it. Oh, you're so jealous, or you're such a jealous person. You know, all I got to do is even, you know, uh, smile or say hi to someone and you're just terribly jealous about that you need to get over that but God's jealousy is a pure jealousy it's the only righteous jealousy there is he really and fully wants us for himself and he wants to be fully with us in union and in exclusiveness of that relationship he wants to be our Lord, our God our lover and it meets with resistance and we want to belong to other gods and other powers because of the idolatrous nature in our heart. God will never rest agreeably with that in our relationship with him. Remember Abraham? In Genesis chapter 22, I, Abraham has finally re <laughs> received the answer to all of God's promises that God had been promising him for 25 years. He has Isaac. And Isaac, every time he looks at Isaac, he thinks to himself, there he is. He's the hope and dreams. Everything I could ever hope for, dream about, care about, want is wrapped up in this boy. And God says, take him to the mountain, kill him, offer him as a sacrifice. But here's how God says it. 
In our Bibles, it says, take your son, Isaac, your only son, and offer him on the mountain. But there is no son in that verse. Take Isaac, your son, I'll allow that one for translations purposes, your only, your only, your only. Isaac was Abraham's only. That is the language of idolatry. That is the, la God was jealous and God tested Abraham to see whom he loved. Take your only, take him to the mountain, offer him. The amazing thing is not that God asked him to do it. The amazing thing is that Abraham did it. He took him to the mountain and he told him, uh, I and the boy will return. <laughs> I don't know how Abraham understood. I go up this mountain, I offer the son, but we're both coming back. But I know this. I know that in that boy right there are all the promises of God to me. And the text says at the end of the God's test that Abraham took his only home with him, his only. God purified Abraham's heart. But God will brook no rival. He won't play that. And he won't play with our hearts like that. We are, uh, in lack of a better term, and I know people get a little upset when you say this, we're whoring after other gods. Uh, it's terrible, but we do it, especially worshiping ourselves. But God cannot rest agreeably with that. He will not tolerate opposition. He will not brook any rival. It crosses our path to break our resistance in his jealous love and demands our total surrender to fellowship with him. And that's what's wrong with some of you right now is you've got God in fifth place and you're loving on everything else and your life is miserable and God is about to engineer in your life. And I'm not telling you this as a judgment, but as a father who wants his children to find joy in life, he will discipline you for worshiping other gods. See, some of you, you've just sort of got God over here, but he's not in the center. You need a Copernican revolution in your life, a revolution of repentance where God is the center and everything else is subject to that, where you're loving him in the center. God's jealous. God's jealous. But God's love has a goal. It has a telos. He not only wants us to be present with us, but being present with us, he wants to change and renew us, and he wants us to look like Jesus, and he will do whatever is necessary to bring us to that point. One day, the image of God will be totally renewed in all of us who believe, and we will be beautiful creatures. C.S. Lewis said, if you ever, even an angel ever saw a saint glorified, he would fall on his face in worship, in adoration, though it would be wrong. We are going to be made new, and God's process is in that, and he will not stop. All of that said, however, a most difficult question faces us. No matter how well man is suited for the love, this love in the presence of the unasked-for jealous love, Man turns out to be an enemy and a rebel. God desires to give himself to man as holy love. But if we refuse this relationship, 
God will have to deal with man in such a way as to make him realize the situation and compel him to turn around and receive God's love. He will do that. Some of you right now are wondering, why is my life this way? Because God wants your attention. He wants you to change who you love the most. You say, well, Pastor Tim, that could happen every day. Yes, it could. <laughs> it could. But sometimes we're in a rough spot, and we need to ask ourselves some really difficult questions. God wants our heart aflame with passion and love for him. And we're so lackadaisical and casual about it. But God pursues us. He comes after us. I read about a preacher the other day who was uh, telling a story about a man who gave a testimony in his church telling how God had sought and found him and how God had loved him. God had called him. God had saved him. God had delivered him and cleansed him and healed him, uh, healed him and a tremendous testimony to the glory of God. After the meeting, one of the rather legalistic members of the church took him aside and he says, you know, I appreciate everything you said about what God did for you, but you didn't mention anything about what your part was in this whole relationship. He said, uh, salvation is really part us and part God, and you should have mentioned something about your part. And the man scratched his head and said, oh, well, my part was sinning and running away, and his part was chasing me and finding me. And that's how it is. And we, we don't stop doing that once we become a Christian. Our God is a consuming fire filled with holy love. For those who resist, ultimately, they get wounded love, which is wrath. The wrath of God will be the experience. I tell people all the time, Jesus will either be your judge or he will be your savior. He will either judge you or he will save you. Either or. And the response from you is to turn to him and receive him as Savior. Patience with God in this matter ultimately wears out. The gospel leaves no doubt that we may surrender ourselves in complete confidence to the gracious love of God. When we refuse that, we choose wrath. I hear this all the time. People ask me, how can God send people to hell. How can a loving God send people to hell? People choose to go to hell. That's what they choose. All of us would choose to go to hell but for the amazing grace of God coming and turning our hearts. We're all estranged from God. God meets us where we are as injured love works to make us aware of our estrangement, induces us to surrender to his love. And from Genesis 3 throughout Revelation 22 in the Bible, the question is, where are you? Where are you? The continuous announcement of the fact, the story reaches its culmination in the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, where holiness and wrath come together. He vicariously bears our estrangement to win for us the gifts of repentance and faith. Grace is available to all. To reject it means you have chosen wrath. So do you know something about this love of God? Does, does it break through with you at all? Do you, do you rejoice in it? Do you see yourself 
sometimes very cold about it, sometimes very indifferent, double-minded, lacking passion, dull. Keep yourselves in the love of God by frequently reflecting on it in the Word of God and in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the way you love us. Nobody loves us like this. We don't love anybody like this. And it astounds us. We thank you for your mercy and your grace as expressions of this kind of love that we know is difficult to wrap our heads around. We thank you for the season that we're experiencing here and celebrating the season of Advent, the season of your coming, and we thank you that we can have joy regardless of how our Christmas might be or how it might go. We can have joy because of the holy love of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, and we pray in his name. Father, we also pray that as we give, we might give as people delivered from sins, rejoicing in forgiveness, basking in your love, with a heart toward pleasing you, and we pray in Christ's name, amen.